everybody? Man, so good to be with you. My name is Dave, if we haven't met. Uh, I work here, and I'm so glad to be with you guys. We are in the brand new sermon series, and I want to just give three quick kind of illustrations about why I'm excited about this sermon series and what I hope it will do. The first was uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had our summer recharge conference for our folks. 2020 was tough and it was like, man, what are we going to do? And so we came out of that and we're like, let's just get together around tables and eat food and also talk about what it means to follow Jesus in this moment. And we had our friend Joshua Ryan Butler and Nancy Ortberg come out. So on Friday night, Joshua Ryan Butler, an incredible author, speaker, pastor, he, he, was, uh, he, he flew in from, Portland, uh, from Arizona, where, Phoenix, where he, he, uh, where he works. And uh, I was sent to pick him up, because why Uber when you can drive with Dave in his Honda Odyssey minivan, right? <laughs> the bumping Honda Odyssey. Uh, anyway, so I pick him up, and as we're driving away from the hotel, he's like, oh man, I, uh, do you have a Bible? Because I forgot mine in the hotel room. And I'm like, um, I, I hope so. It, we, I'm at a church. We're going to a church. But then I realized I got a problem. My office is at the other campus. And uh, my friend's office is, they have Bibles, but they're like locked. And we used to have a lost and found where everyone who like left their Bibles, we would like collect them. And we had like this nice library of your leftover Bibles that you forgot. So shame on you. But good on us. And I, but I couldn't find it because COVID and everything. And I didn't know where it was. So I'm asking my friends on staff, like, hey, do you know where we, um, do you know where we keep the Bibles? <laughs> so I, so I, I don't know what's going on. And uh, Alana and Faith, they're all there. And they're like, well, look in this closet. And, the, and then they said, in Easter, we used to give away Bibles. So we can find that. So I went in there and they had these boxes. But they didn't have Bibles. They just had the New Testament. And I knew. And so I grabbed one. I'm like, well, this will have to do. And because he's only speaking out of, he was only using scriptures out of the New Testament, I'm like, it'll be fine. And I'm walking into the auditorium to give him this, this, this New Testament. And somebody stopped me and said, what is that you're holding? And I said, it's the New Testament. And the person said, no, it's not. There's no way. It's so thin. And I said, thank you. I have been working hard. And they're like, no, like that's, that's it. That's the New Testament. This, this, that's it. And it reminded me of a moment. Um, I'm in seminary right now. I'll get my master's and in theology. And one of my friends in the course told us about a moment with one of his instructors, one of his professors, who kind of got up and took his Bible and just took in the middle of the Bible and just grabbed, just grabbed the gospels, just held them up and was just like this, guys, this. 93 pages. This is the account, the four accounts of Jesus' life and his words. This. And if we're going to be people of Jesus, who follow Jesus, who listen to Jesus, who hopefully look like Jesus, then wouldn't it be good once a quarter to review these words? To think on them? How about, not once a quarter, how about once every, uh, half a year? Once every six months? Once a year? And that was so deeply convicting to all of us in that class. We want to be people of Jesus. This is it. It's not that much. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to stare at Jesus. Uh, Tim Mackey, uh, one of my professors, he's a brilliant theologian. He's the founder of this thing called the Bible Project. He calls the Old Testament Jewish meditative literature. And I guess the New Testament is Jesus meditative literature, right? It's meant, my grandfather used to have these butterscotch candies. Anybody remember those? And you don't chew those, you know? You just, it's like slow. If you chew them, you're weird. 
you just kind of, right? Do you know what I mean? Just let it slowly dissolve. You just think about it for a while. And so that's what we want to do for the next four weeks. We're going to look at four titles of Jesus, four names that either he's given or he chooses, and what they mean, and what they're inviting us into, what they show about Jesus, what they're about, and what, what, they, what they might mean for us. And so it's our hope that in this time that we become a little closer to Jesus. And so today we're going to start with the Gospel of John. John is the author of the fourth gospel. It's the, it's the most unique out of uh, the four gospels in some ways. John is a theologian. He's a pastor, but he's also a poet. He is the most poetic of all the gospel writers. And he starts off his gospel, the story of Jesus, his story of Jesus, in a very interesting way. Now, most of us, when we think about the beginning of the story of Jesus, we think about Christmas, right? You think about the manger and the star and the wise men and Mary and Mary and Elizabeth going together and bumping tummies. And there's this, all these beautiful moments that are recounted in the scripture about Christmas, you know? And um, that's not where John starts. He starts at a very different part. He starts, he zooms back 30,000 feet to the macro story. And this is how John starts his gospel. And this is how he identifies Jesus. Very interesting. In the beginning, John writes, was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he continues in John 1.14. He says, the word, this word, this word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and full of truth. This is how John starts his gospel by calling Jesus this interesting, quixotic, and confusing title, the Word. The Word. In Greek, the Logos. What is going on here? What is John doing? And I want to point to this because John is doing something incredibly skilled and adept. He's genius. His, his literary form is genius. It's, it was almost like he had help. That was a joke about the inspiration of Scripture. Okay, we'll come back to that. There it is. All right. Um, so we're there, and John calls Jesus the Word. Now, in the culture that John's writing, there's two interesting kind of um, movements that are going on culturally. One's Greco-Roman and one's Jewish, because John lives in a Greco-Roman world in the Roman Empire, but he's also very Jewish. And so we're going to talk about those things, because this term, the Logos, meant two things. It would, would have been known in the ancient world, and we want to talk about that. Now, the first way we want to talk about is the Greek-Roman way that... Um, he would have thought about this. And so the Greeks and the Romans, they loved the Logos. They had a term for the Logos. The Logos to them was the rational, ordered principle that made sense of all the natural world. For them, it was the way the Greeks and the Romans love rhetoric. They love words. They love philosophy. They love talking. They love debate. It was like that was their stars of the day. Their celebrities were not basketball players, but rather people who were incredible speakers, oration. 
And they thought that the word was the way that you got out yourself, who you are, what you're about. That's the way that we got ideas out there. It was the rational ordered principle. It was the part of you that could not be seen, but you could express and get out into the world. And the shocking idea when John opens his gospel this way is he's confronting the Greco-Roman world. He's saying, yes, this ordering principle of the entire universe is true. That is the logos, but plot twist It's a person. Now, to think about how the Greeks would have thought about this term, the logos, I'd like to use a metaphor from 90s hip-hop because whenever I can go back to 90s hip-hop and R&B, I will, I will. Any other hip-hop heads? I know there, yeah, I know there are some. So the first album I ever purchased on CD, uh, for those of you who are younger, CDs were these things. Uh, The first album I ever purchased was from this group, Run DMC. And I know you're thinking, Dave, you're from Ohio, to which I would say, shut up. The heart loves what the heart loves. And okay, so in late 80s, early 90s hip hop, there was this term, this phrase that kept coming up. And it was part of hip hop culture. It was part of that expression uh, in that community. And it's the word, word, right? When you said something true, when you expressed yourself, Hip-hop, in the hip-hop culture, words were so important because they're the way you express yourself. And when you said something true, or when you said or proposed something, somebody might say word, and then you would say word, right? <laughs> it's this thing, right? And, and it comes from this expression in this community, my word is my bond, meaning what I'm saying is true. I don't say untrue things. My word is my bond. And then it switched in 1990 with their Run DMC's album, The Word is Born. That meant that from, from, from me, my word is born out of this music. But this, is, this is my expression. And, that's, and then out of that comes word, word up, word is born, word is bond, word to your mother, word, word. It's all over the place, right? This is what this means. The Greeks viewed the word in this exact way. This is how they viewed it. An expression of self, the way you got your thoughts and ideas out there, the truth about things, this is what the ancient Greeks would have thought about it. So again, the ancient Greeks were just like Run DMC. That's the first time that's been said in church. All right, but that's not the only uh, meaning of the logos that John is playing with. Okay, so John's saying, hey, Greeks, Romans, pay attention. There is an ordering rational principle behind the world, and it's a person. Now, the Jewish concept of logos was even deeper and richer. John starts his gospel by saying these words. And to Jewish listeners, they would have heard something quite different. They would have heard, in the beginning was the word. Now, if you're a Jewish listener, where does your mind immediately go to? In the beginning, right? You go all the way back to Genesis. This is their holy text. John is playing with this term and linking all the way back to the Old Testament, to the opening words of Genesis, the opening words of the Bible, of their holy scriptures, which are in the beginning God created. So this is what John is doing. To the Jewish people, the word The word, the word of God was the word of creation where God created everything. But it wasn't just the word of creation. It was the word of revelation. When God spoke, he revealed himself to the world. But it wasn't just the word of revelation and creation. It was the word of deliverance and salvation. God spoke and Pharaoh's armies fell. 
when God spoke, his people were delivered. So there's all these nuances and plot twists. Not only is this word a person, but this person is with us. This would have been mind-blowing to the Jewish concept. So John is challenging and reinterpreting this term. So let's talk about the Jewish concept of the word of God, because this is where John is driving us to, back to Genesis chapter 1. When you hear the word of God, when, you hear, when Jesus is called the word, this is a little confusing, because when you hear the word, you probably think of an audible spoken thing, right? Word, words are spoken or they're written, right? That's the idea. So what does it mean that Jesus is the word of God? Now, most of the time you're thinking, well, it must be just he, is he spoken? But the word of God, scripturally, is not just the spoken word of God, but it's something actually much bigger. It's a category that's much bigger. For example, in Genesis 1, when God speaks, he's their creation, and he brings into the world all that is. But then this word of God continues on in weird and interesting ways. For example, in Genesis 15, the word of the Lord comes to this guy named Abraham. And this is how the text says. It says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. How can a word be a vision? A word is spoken. And yet, what this says is the word of the Lord comes to Abraham in a vision. He sees things. So it's not just audible or written. It's bigger than that. There's visions. He sees something, interacts with someone. And for Samuel, the little boy Samuel, God calls Samuel to be a prophet. He's a hero in the Old Testament. And it says this in 1 Samuel 3, the boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Again, I thought the word of the Lord was the audible spoken thing, but it's much bigger than this. It's bigger. There's visions involved. And then there's this really weird moment when Jeremiah, the prophet, the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah in a very interesting way. It says, Jeremiah recounts this experience. He says, the word of the Lord came to me and God speaks. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And then this really weird thing happens. The Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I put my words in your mouth. Very weird. God's like, here, eat the scroll. Ooh, it's delicious. It's very weird. Like, is it a vision? Is it God interact? Is God work? Is God touching? Is, is he there? What, what's happening? And the point is, yes, all of that. God's word in human history in the Old Testament is God breaking through into human history. It's God talking, it's God communicating, it's visions. N.T. Wright, the New Testament uh, writer, puts it this way. To put it one way, the word of the Lord or the word of Yahweh is like an enormous reservoir full of creative divine wisdom and power into which the prophets and other writers tap by God's call and grace so that the word may flood through them to do God's work of flooding or irrigating his people. So it's a much bigger term. The word of the Lord is not just a thing that God says, but even through the Old Testament, there's a sense that it's God's presence. It's God showing up. It's God breaking through into human history. It's God intervening. It's God speaking calling, illustrating, doing all these things. It's much bigger and more robust than simple words. Which brings us to the most confusing part of this, which is when I was growing up and kind of recently, when I hear the term, the word of the Lord, I primarily think of this, the Bible. 
You've heard that, right? The word of God, right? This is, this is what Christians say. This is what Christians have said for centuries, that this is the word of God. So how does that relate to this idea of visions or that weird Jeremiah here, eat this scroll thing? Very weird. Like, how does that relate? The thing we have to avoid and the thing I want to be clear not to say is I'm never going to pit the word of God versus the word of God, right? This thing is the word of God. But so how does that relate? Jesus had a very serious relationship with the scriptures. In fact, in Matthew 5, this is what Jesus says about the word of God that came to the prophets and to Moses, which is the outworking in the Old Testament. It says, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Those were the scrolls the scribes wrote down for the Pentateuch and the Old Testament prophets, the law and the history. Do not think I've come to abolish them. I have not come to abolish them, to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He goes on to say, therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of God, of kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has a very very strong relationship with this. He has a very positive view of this. This is the very words of God. But it's not just the only way that God communicated through his prophets. The word of God is actually bigger. It's a bigger reservoir. Imagine this. This is an illustration I think is helpful. Imagine I write you a note. Let's say that you um, are kind of in trouble and you need to be picked up at your work at 4.30 to go somewhere and your car broke down. And so I write you a note, and I say on this note, I'll pick you up at 4.30 p.m. I'll be there at 4.30 to pick you up and drive you. Now, is that note important? Yes. It communicates what's going to happen. It communicates what time and how and what's going to happen. It communicates all those things. It's very important. That note is very important. But that note is not just a note, nor is it just a prediction. The note also, weirdly enough, the words on that note actually point to something bigger, which is my relationship with you and my car, the Honda Odyssey, which will be by at 4.30 to pick you up. Do you see what I'm saying? These words are not just words. They also point to a relationship, a person, me, who will be by at 4.30 to pick you up because we're friends. Do you see what I'm saying? So the note itself is important. But the note also points to something much bigger, a person, in the same way it is with the scriptures. It's not just that the scriptures are important. It's that they're bigger than just the words on the page. They, they point to something bigger. One of the teachers on our teaching team put it this way. I think it was Finney Abraham. He said, the word of God is imprinted on the page and embodied in Jesus. It's both. So perhaps that clears things up. But... Now we have to get into the word of God. When you and I speak, things happen, right? Run DMC said, my word is born. Into this world, I will put my truth. I will put truth. I will put my story out there. Something happens. I hope something happens. Now, when I speak, something sometimes happens. When I tell my children things, sometimes things happen. When you speak, sometimes things happen. But when God speaks, you best believe things happen. 
For God, when God speaks, it's not just words. When God speaks, it's action. This is incredible. When God speaks, it happens. Look how the prophet Isaiah describes it. This is one of the more beautiful passages. This is God speaking about himself. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Man, that is worth thinking about. When God speaks, it is action. It happens. God makes things happen. This is what is going on. And in Genesis 1 and in John 1, this is what John is hinting at. So what is happening? In John 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And this Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then look what happens. Through him, all things were made. So this Word of God is creative. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. This word of God brings life. And that life was the light of all mankind. So this life somehow is light, juxtaposed to darkness. And light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What John is doing is pointing back to Genesis 1.1. To this moment, before creation, when everything was chaos, when everything was darkness, It said that God hovered over the darkness. And the Hebrew word for this is this really fun Hebrew phrase, tohu wa bohu. I'm going to just say it with me. Tohu wa bohu. Say it. Tohu wa bohu. It means the wild and the waste, the uncultivated and the uninhabited, the empty, the formless. There is no life. Before all that was, it was chaos and disorder, and God speaks, and what happens? He brings order, he brings beauty, he brings goodness, he brings light, and he brings life. This is what God does when he speaks. God orders things. He orders things. He brings beauty and goodness and order and light and life. This is what God does. And so it is at creation, and so it is with Jesus. When Jesus is on the scene, when Jesus speaks, he brings beauty and order and goodness and light and life with every word. And it's not just his words, he embodies that. Wherever Jesus goes as the living word, he makes people spiral up or down. They repel or they attract. Jesus, he is powerful because he's the living word. There's a million examples of this. A couple of my favorites. And we could spend all day on this. Think about all the times when Jesus speaks, when he brings order or beauty or goodness. This is incredible. There's this moment, it's in John 11. Jesus is late, which is weird The one who created all time is late. But he's not late because Jesus isn't never late. But his two friends think he's late. 
because something, is ter- something terrible has happened. While he was away, their brother fell ill. And they called for him to come because they knew he was special. They knew he was the Messiah. So come heal our, our brother who is your friend too. And Jesus is very close to these two sisters, Mary and Martha. And he doesn't show up. And their brother dies. And these two, these two sisters, Mary and Martha, go out to meet their friend Jesus. And Jesus speaks words to both of them. And these words are very different. But as you'll see in the story, when Jesus speaks, he brings order and beauty and goodness out of chaos and darkness. He brings light and life where there was not before. The first sister is Martha. Martha is a pistol. Martha, Martha exhibits her emotions with anger. She's furious. Her brothers died, and so she comes out at Jesus, and she comes at Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus comes back at Martha with the same force she comes at him. He says, what's going to happen at the end of all things? What's God going to do? Resurrection and the life, I guess, Martha says. And Jesus is like, I'm the resurrection and the life. Me. So Martha, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. He's challenging her. You think God's abandoned your brother? You think I've abandoned you? You think I don't have the power? You think I'm powerless? You think I'm just walking around teaching? You think I'm just walking around saying words? You think... I'm the resurrection and the life, Martha, me, me. Let that sink in. That anger, that feeling of abandonment, that feeling of hopelessness, that cynicism, all that's got to go away in confrontation to the truth of my word, which is I'm the resurrection and the life. He comes at her. Correct your theology. Correct your thinking. I'm here. I'm the resurrection and the life. Now watch. This is what she needed. Martha was strong. She was wounded. She's angry. God comes at her in exactly the way she needed. And then her sister comes out. Now, how many of you have children? How many have two children who are very different than one another? Everyone. There's never a parent that's like, no, they're pretty much identical. Yeah. I use the exact same parenting styles for both of them all the time. It works perfect. It's like a carbon copy. Anybody here a twin or have twins? Any, anybody? Is there any twins in here or no twins? Anybody know a twin? Are they, are they different than one another? Yes! Even genetic copies are different than one another. It's unbelievable. So Mary is very different than her sister. Mary comes to Jesus, says the exact same phrase. If you had been here, my brother would not, would, would not have died. And then she starts to sob. And what does Jesus do with her? Not the same thing he does with Martha. He speaks different words. He cries with her. He weeps. Because that's what she needed. His words healed Martha by correcting and redirecting her anger and her passions, by reassuring her. And with Martha, he comforts. And his presence is with but then there's another 
person in this story who needs something? Their brother. And then Jesus speaks some words to him. Lazarus, come out that tomb. And Jesus speaks words of order and beauty and goodness into Lazarus' life, and he comes back from the dead. This is what Jesus does. When he speaks, it orders things. It brings beauty and goodness and light and life out of chaos and darkness. That's what he does. That's just what he does. And he's the living word. We know what this is like as people, to speak words that bring life. Because Jesus didn't just, he's not just the word of the prophets and the scribes. He's not just the word that spoke 2,000 years ago. Because Jesus, he was killed, but then he resurrected, and he's not dead. And he's still speaking. He's still speaking words of life and beauty and order and goodness in this world, in this community, in his church. This is what Jesus is still doing. And we see this. A couple of weeks ago, and I have permission to share this story, Jay Kim, my buddy, my friend, who's in charge of teaching here at Westgate, he's speaking at South Hills this morning, and a couple of weeks ago, he spoke on Father's Day. If you know the story of Jay, Jay's father abandoned his family and his mother, him and his mom, when he was little. And that father wound is still with Jay. He's talked about it openly and honestly. The abandonment by his own dad. And so he mentioned that kind of in passing on Father's Day. He's like, you know, I didn't have a dad. My dad abandoned our family. So for those of you who know what that's like, I feel you. I'm with you. I know what that's like. And um, he talked about what that meant for him. And a woman from our community who we're good friends with, um, she is just an incredible woman. She posted on her Instagram page, her name's Diane Kim, and she posted a picture of her and her family watching online service. They had watched online that morning because of a variety of reasons, but it's just her husband, Eddie, and their kids, and in the background, you see her mom and dad, and they're watching this service. And Diane, who is an author and a writer and just brilliant, very intentionally chose her words because she's like that. And she wrote, my Korean dad was super proud of you, Sir, you see how intentional she was with each of those words. And she posted this. And Jay, retelling the story, starts weeping in front of our, our group. And he says, I had no idea. I needed that. I had no idea. It ordered and brought goodness and beauty and life and truth. And I had no idea that that needed to happen. Because the words of Jesus, even given through his people, bring order and goodness and beauty and life and light. I have a million examples of this, a million. But as I was reflecting, I remember a moment a couple of years ago, I had a college reunion that was planned, and the college reunion 
planning committee reached out, and I was like, oh, boy, I'm not going to that. You know, it's just like, I want to, but that's weird. And, uh, but on this, on this board, on this message board, there was a whole bunch of people who were on there, and it was kind of cool catching up with folks. But I went to school with some, like, really brilliant folks. And I went to school for journalism, and I just got out of that because well, that's a whole other story. But I'm, I'm not in journalism anymore. But I went to some school with some ballers. I mean, some really, these people are now like really done incredible things with their lives. And somebody posted just flippantly. They said, it's amazing to see how much everyone has done and how far everyone's come. Well, except for Dave. And what they meant was in the field, right? That's what they meant. But you know how I took that, right? Like everyone's made something of their life except for me. And I hurt. And I was, I was recounting that to my wife and it, it hurt. I mean, pressed all the insecurity buttons. You know, every single one of those is like. Dit, 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 dit. And I left for men's group that night. I had, I had my men's group and I, I, was, I was down. I felt, I felt pretty bad. And that night I came in and everyone was in bed. I came in a little late. And there was a note on the garage door as I entered the house. It was from my wife. She said, may the words of your children and your wife help. And she had put, she and the kids had filled every surface of the kitchen glass with post-it notes of things that they loved about me. Words heal. They bring life and order and goodness to a world of chaos. And if that's true for us who are people, how much more so is it true for the very word of God in the flesh incarnate? Seems to me, as we close this, it would be good, and I have the great honor and the great privilege to read to you now, over you, to you, some words from the word. I'm going to read some scriptures, some words from the word. And it's my prayer that as I speak these things, which are not my words, but are the very word of God, that it will not go forth in vain, but God will accomplish what he wants to accomplish. And perhaps even this morning right now, bring order and beauty and goodness and light and life to you in an area that perhaps you need it. Will you just close your eyes and let these words sink over you? And perhaps one is for you right now. God in his spirit wants to speak. Psalm 103. I am full of mercy and grace. I overflow with love for you. Do you believe that God overflows, can barely contain his love for you? He does. From Genesis, I created you in my own image with my special blessing. You are unique. God doesn't make mistakes. He created you to be you with him and to do something 
different and special and unique in this world that nobody can possibly do in this world what you can do with God. From Ephesians, I chose you to be adopted into my family before creation. Maybe your earthly family wasn't that great. Maybe you were abandoned. But you've never been abandoned. God adopted you from before you were even born. You're in his family. From Ezekiel, I've given you a new heart. I put my own spirit in you. When you feel powerless to change, when you wonder if things will ever be different inside, God says, I can do heart surgery. I can take from you a heart of stone, change it to a heart of flesh, a new heart. From 2 Corinthians, my power will rest on you when you are weak. Anyone real weak right now? Just doesn't even know how you're gonna go on? God will carry you. He'll make it with him. He'll make sure of it. From the book of Numbers, I will bless your life and keep watch over you always. Not keep watch over you sometimes. You're not abandoned. If God seems far away or distant, please remember he is watching you always. From Jeremiah, if you search for me with your heart, you'll find me. God doesn't obscure himself to those who seek. Maybe you need to know that God can be found. From Peter, cast all your worries on me, for I really and truly care about you. I know some of you are carrying really heavy things right now. God will help. He'll carry those. He really wants you to give you give him those things because he, he truly and really cares for you. From Colossians, you are holy. You're free from blame because of Jesus Christ's death. There's no shame with Jesus. He knows. He's forgiven. As far as the east is from the west, what you've done, your sins, my sins, our sins, they are like a match thrown into the Pacific Ocean. They do not stand a chance. From Proverbs, trust in me with all your heart. I'll guide you. Maybe there's some of you with some big decisions. You need some help. God says, I'll guide you. Or perhaps the simple yet beautiful promise from Isaiah. I am with you. I am with you.
the very words of God. Backed up with the word of God who became flesh and dwelt with us and dwells with us. May his words bring beauty, order, goodness, and light into the wild and chaos of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, thanks that you are the word. Thanks for your words that bring such life. Thanks for still speaking today. We desperately need your voice. There are voices that speak to us that are not you, that deform us and hurt us and bring all manner of chaos. Would you speak right now to each person in this room in a way that only you can and a power that only you have to bring goodness and order and beauty and light and life? And may we as your children take time to truly listen because you want to talk to us so badly. You want to heal us so badly. Living word of God, would you speak and do what only you can? It's in your name we pray.